if you can believe this, there was a Nazi-sponsored church. It was called the German Christian Church Movement, but an engaged 29-year-old called Dietrich Bonhoeffer led a pastor's seminary that opposed it. As you'd expect, due to the muscle and the force of the Nazis, Bonhoeffer and his band of 25 trainee pastors were forced underground. And therefore, they lived, as someone once said, on the edge of eternity in those frightening days. The seminary was shut down in 1937. And as the president of the seminary and a participant in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, Bonhoeffer was hanged in a concentration camp that, if you can stomach this, only two weeks before it was liberated. He never married. One of his students wrote this about his time in the seminary under Bonhoeffer's leadership. Quote, Bonhoeffer wanted a genuine, natural community in the preacher's seminary. And this community was practiced in play, in walks through the richly wooded and beautiful district of Pomerania, during evenings spent in listening to someone reading, in making music and singing, and last not least, in worship together and holy communion. He kept entreating us to live together naturally and not to make worship an exception. He rejected all false and hollow sentiment. In other words, the Christian life was the consumed life. Contrast that vision and that reality of the church with what one pastor writes about the church in the West today. He writes, We are plagued in the West by a kind of laissez-faire Christianity that lacks the vigorous camaraderie and discipline that unites a kingdom in wartime. We don't have a wartime mentality and therefore our young men and women do not gather late at night in basement rooms and plot their strategies to detonate Satan's bridgehead and liberate some of his captives. We don't see ourselves as insurgents in the alien territory of sin, planting explosives of righteousness and truth at every fortified wall. And so our eyes don't meet with a flame of eternal friendship and say without a word amid a thousand aliens, you and I will die for this cause and join hands in the resurrection. We don't feel like a fifth column devoted with all our strength to sabotage the rule of Satan in this world. And therefore, our life together is not intense, but petty. There are no coded handshakes of joy or secret passwords, and there are few tearful embraces and songs of thanks because a squad of witnesses has returned safely, even bringing some liberated captives home. As we continue our series in the book of Acts today, I believe it's fair for us to say that the church back in the book of Acts resembled the underground church in Germany more than it did the church in the West in the 21st century. Why? Because persecution had begun. 
The Holy Spirit had descended in Acts chapter 2. The church had grown to about 10,000 men, so maybe 20,000 people, including women and children. Souls were being added to the church daily. The sick were being healed. The poor were being cared for. But at the beginning of chapter 4, Peter and John, the spokesmen of the apostles, were gathered before the Sanhedrin, and they had been threatened to speak no more in the name of of Jesus, such that a laissez-faire church was an impossibility in the minds of the early church. Opposition had created perspective. Now we come this morning to one of those short snapshot staccato rapid fire succession descriptions of the early church back in the first century. But before we get there, I want you to bear with this word of exhortation. Friends, let us not wait until we are facing first century persecution before we be all that the church was called to be. Why wait? Why bother? I've said in the last two messages in this series that those of us who exist today in a pre-Christian context should rather expect the persecution that the church experienced in a pre-Christian context. But friend, why should we wait for that kind of opposition before we press into the reality of all that the church was always designed to be? When the Apostle Paul spoke of the church being bought with the blood of God, in Acts chapter 20 verse 28, ask yourself, did God pour out his blood to create a laissez-faire people drifting through the hymns, drifting through the readings on a Sunday, drifting through the sermons as Hugh shouts his head off for a good 45 minutes, going home, coming back, and then doing it all over again. Spurgeon said, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For I would not have been a perfect, it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. The dearest place on earth to us. And if you'd sit there and smirk and say, Yeah, right, Spurgeon. Yeah, right, Hugh. My question for you would be this. What are you doing to change it? What are you doing to improve and enlift the caliber of the standard of church life? Now, in this short snapshot summary passage, the point is the spirit-filled church is marked by commonality. And I know this is shaping up to be the longest introduction to a sermon you've ever heard before, Uh, But allow me for a brief moment to defend the use of the phrase spirit-filled. Where am I getting that phrase from here in Acts chapter 4? We don't read it in the verses we're about to study. Well, when Luke gives us these quick flash summary statements of what the church looked like, they are sandwiched between a mighty work of the Spirit of God. So we had one back in Acts chapter 2, and prior to that description, the Holy Spirit had descended, 3,000 people had been converted, there came the short snapshot summary, and it was followed then by the healing of the layman at the beautiful gate 
in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here we are in Acts chapter 4. In the passage we looked at last Sunday morning, we were told the place in which the church had prayed was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak the word with all boldness. Here we have the snapshot summary statement. And then next Sunday, God kills two people for lying to the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is permeating. The Holy Spirit is sandwiching these short snapshot summaries that we read of and have here in the book of Acts. The the Spirit-filled church is marked by commonality. And we're going to see today, number one, common concern, and number two, common sacrifice. Number one, common concern. Look with me in your Bibles, Acts chapter 4, and let's begin reading at verse 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, if the description of the Spirit-filled, if this is a description, rather, of the Spirit-filled church, the question is, what does it mean to be Spirit-filled? We've Already seen in the book of Acts that there was one outpouring in Acts chapter 2, but then there were multiple refillings of the Holy Spirit. Someone asked a pastor once, have you received the second blessing? And he said, second, I've received the third, fourth, and fifth blessing. Many refillings. But most fundamentally, being spirit-filled refers to the experience of having a heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh put in its place, and being filled with the enabling power of the Spirit of God to obey the law of God. Listen to this from Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And throughout the Old Testament, there are dozens, aren't there, of commands about caring for the poor, caring for the underprivileged. And then Jesus said in Luke's gospel, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven, in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so as a spirit-filled community, the church of Acts were caring For the underprivileged, the church of God had been filled with the Spirit of God to obey the law of God from the heart of God. But friends, the question is, what are we supposed to do with this 
passage. Should you all be going home today, selling your cars and putting the money at my feet? Well, when we began this series, I said, didn't I, that we were going to encounter time and time again as we journey through the book of Acts, the difference between descriptive passages and prescriptive passages. So descriptive passages simply describe what happened. Prescriptive passages described what happens as normative for all Christians in all places and in all times. And I believe that the next passage in the book of Acts answers the question, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Because Ananias and Sapphira are killed claiming to have given all of the equity that they received from a field that they sold. And Peter says to Ananias before he died, Ananias, when the field remained unsold, did it not belong to you? And the point is, Ananias, you needn't have given 100% because as the field was at your possession, you were free to have given whatever you wanted. The problem was you claimed to have given 100% out of pretext and lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, before you all breathe a huge sigh of relief, though, I want to make the case this morning that the heart and the concern behind the sale of assets is not only prescriptive, it is instead inevitable in the lives of those who have been truly born again. Why? Because when we get saved, we get saved having been overcome with Jesus' concern for us. That's how it happened. Remember, friends, that at one time, we were impoverished. We were poor. We were spiritually bankrupted. And the response of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was and is the richest person in the universe, was to enter into our poverty and was to immerse himself in our shame. He swapped heaven for earth. He traded riches for dust. He swapped a throne for a manger and the praises of heaven for the shame and scorn of a cross. Why? Because he was concerned for us. That's why. And he loved us. And his gentle heart and his lion-like heart was broken to a thousand pieces when he saw us in the muck and mire of our sin. That's why the Apostle Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I've told you before that many moons ago, I used to work for a a debt counseling charity as a caseworker and One of our clients was talking about her money problems on TV and an anonymous man who'd never met this woman before called the charity, found out who she was and said, I want to cover everything she owes. And so we donated to the charity and we covered everything that she owed. Friends, he was a non-Christian and she was a stranger to him. 
how much more should we then, as the church, be concerned for the needs of others within the body over and above our own needs? I read this past week of a couple in a church who had a real burden for this single mum in their church. And this couple were not well off. They weren't loaded or anything like that. But they came to her and said, look, we want to pay your bills for you. We want to pay your gas bills, your electricity bills, all of your utilities. And so she gave them her bills and they just paid her bills going forward. And a pastor friend of mine said to a very small group of trusted friends, so this wasn't him showing off before his church or anything like that, just said to a few handful of men that sometimes when he's invited to preach at a church or when he goes to see friends that he hasn't seen in a long time, he'll just hide money in their homes in places that they wouldn't be able to find for a very long time, so they'd never be able to trace it back to him. What motivates that? concern. And what's the source of that concern? It's the Holy Spirit. And why is it the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, the one who left it all for us. And so before we move on this morning, I want to make two qualifiers, and I want to give us one challenge. Uh, Qualifier number one, giving to this church does not result in Hugh getting a pay rise. Okay, so if you start giving this morning or if you increase your giving this morning, you're not going to see me driving a Bentley or something like that or owning a private jet and driving it all the way to church, which is just around the corner for me. But um, qualifier number two, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, please don't give to this church. We're just thrilled to have you. We love that you're here and we don't want this to be a burden. If you're here today and you're just checking out HEC, you're not quite sure if this is where you want to settle down, please don't give to this church. We're just thrilled to have you. If you're here today and HEC is your home church, but giving to the church would mean you getting into financial trouble or debt or whatever else, please don't give to this church. You need to be on the receiving end of our care for you. But if you are here today and you can give to the church and this is your home church, Here's my challenging question to you. What does your giving say about your concern? What does your giving say about your concern? Now, you might say, but Hugh, the context here is impoverished saints. We don't have any of those in our church. So why do I need to give? We're all okay here. Friends, even if that were true, which I don't think it is, Wouldn't it be great if we had enough to not only meet the needs of ourselves in the church, but the needs of others outside the church? And that we would in that way be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The heart behind what we read here is both descriptive and prescriptive. And that's what I want us to see second, common sacrifice. Look back at verse 34 with me. It says, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means 
son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we've thought about the heart behind the early church's giving, and it was that of concern. But here I want us to think about the giving itself. What was it that characterized the early church's giving? Well, it was this. It was sacrificial. Friends, this was a giving that hurt. This was a giving that made an actual difference to people's lives. Because it's easy to say we love the brothers, but if there is no evidence in the form of sacrifice, it is likely a concern of sentiment, not a concern of reality. Sentiment and sacrifice are worlds apart from one another. And just as faith without works is dead, concern without sacrifice is dead as well. And how is it that such sacrifice can be possible? Where, where do these Barnabases even come from who sell assets and give it all for the sake of the poor in the church? Here's the answer, through amazement at the sacrifice of Jesus for them. Only a few Sunday nights ago, Michael Cornell spoke to us, didn't he, from Matthew 26, where Mary broke that bottle of perfume over the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a bottle valued at an average year's wages. So for us, we're thinking about 25 to 28,000 pounds. Why does she do that? Jesus said to anoint him for burial. In other words, she did it in the shadow of the cross. That just as Jesus was about to give his all for her, she was willing to give her all for him. Jesus gave his body and blood. Apart from the cross, we might give out of compulsion. Apart from the cross, we might give out of guilt or obligation, but a believer who gives from a cheerful heart is a believer who gives, having been stunned by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for him or her. So friends, allow me to ask you this morning, how real is the cross to you today? How real is it to you today? Does it feel like, in the words of Martin Luther, Jesus Christ had been crucified only yesterday? Dr. John Piper wrote, No one ever deserved suffering less, yet received so much. The stamp of God on on this perfect life is found in two words, without sin. The only person in history who did not deserve to suffer, suffered most. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. None of Jesus' pain was a penalty for his sin. He had none. Later, Piper writes, No one has ever borne so much injustice with so little vengeance. This was not because the torment was tolerable. If we had been forced to watch, we probably would have passed out. In the garden, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In the middle of the night before the high priest, they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. Before the governor, they scourged him. 
Eusebius about AD 300 described Roman scourging of Christians like this, quote, at one time they were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were exposed to sight. In his agony, the soldiers toyed with him. They dressed him in mock robes of royalty. They began to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. A crown of thorns was pressed down on his head, made worse by being driven into his skull with blows. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. In this condition, he was unable to carry his own cross. The torture and shame continued, Piper writes. He was stripped, his hands and feet were nailed to the cross. The mockery was unrelenting through the terrible morning. Hail, King of the Jews! You would who destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Even one of the criminals railed at him. It was a hideous death. And the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia tells us the wounds swelled about the rough nails and the torn and lacerated tendons and nerves caused excruciating agony. The arteries of the head and stomach were surcharged with blood and a terrific throbbing headache ensued. The victim of crucifixion died a thousand deaths. The suffering was so frightful that even among the raging passions of war, Pity was sometimes excited. All of this came upon the friend of sinners, not with brothers at his side, but utterly abandoned. Judas had betrayed him with a kiss. Peter had denied him three times. All the disciples left him and fled. And in the darkest hour of the history of the world, God the Father struck his own son with our punishment. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. The only person in the world who truly knew God cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, what is our silver and gold compared with that? What is the sacrifice of our giving compared to the giving of the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Is it not nothing? Is it not a small thing to give our money for the sake of the poor when Christ gave his body and blood for the sake of us? Were not the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The spirit-filled church is marked by commonality. Amen. Let me pray for us before.